Martin from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Dr. Bruce Gillis. We'll discuss advances in toxicology. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Rocks. Show. Well, advances in modern research are enabling researchers to utilize novel DNA techniques to determine whether persons may be injured by a particular chemical. How does this new method work, and what are the implications for litigation? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Bruce Gillis. Dr. Gillis is the CEO of Cytokine Institute and is an affiliate of the University of Illinois College of Medicine. Dr. Gillis, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much for letting me be with you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and I think this is really a very fascinating subject. I understand that you have a novel method for determining whether or not people are exposed to toxic chemicals. Yes, it's really based upon the understanding that you have the same DNA in each of the cells of your body, but the genes that make up that DNA act differentially or differently. So for example, the DNA that makes up your heart cells and the DNA that makes up your liver cells or your brain cells or your fingernail cells is the same DNA, but they differentiate so that they turn into heart cells or liver cells or brain cells or fingernails, etc. Based upon that understanding, we approached the issue of how to make accurate diagnoses as to when someone has been harmed by a chemical in a parallel fashion by exposing cells and their DNA to tiny amounts of particular chemicals and identifying how the genes differentiate to that chemical. By doing that, we learn that every chemical causes a different type of gene differentiation. And as a result, every chemical has a unique DNA signature. Once you have that signature, if someone were to come to a hospital emergency room and said, I was exposed to chemical X, we could identify the DNA signature of chemical X, see if the DNA of that exposed person matches, and if so, make an accurate diagnosis and institute proper and what we call efficacious or appropriate treatment. So it, it was driven by the desire for making sure you could diagnose someone accurately. As you can understand, there's huge carryover in the area of medical legal issues because people are always worried that they have possibly been harmed by a chemical exposure. For example, the people who lived in the Katrina trailers, there's over 144,000 trailers and people lived there and we now know that those trailers emitted high amounts of formaldehyde and there is a worry that these people have had a resultant injurious or harmful effect from the formaldehyde and this is important to explore because formaldehyde has been documented to cause certain types of cancer like leukemia or cancer of the nasal tract or of the upper respiratory system. 
do these chemicals affect the DNA itself or the expression of the proteins from the DNA? They ex deal with the expression of the genes themselves. And, and that really is an expression of your DNA because once that changes, you could carry that trait for quite some time and maybe 20 years later something else might happen to you and that's why you could fall victim to cancer because as you know you could have been exposed to something harmful a year ago 10 years ago 20 years ago but not have a resultant effect for many many years like a cigarette smoker you know might start smoking as a teenager but not develop any resultant cancer until their 60s so in, in that instance, certainly all the cells of the body might not be affected the same way. Do you have to target a particular part of the body tissue-wise to get your cells? What we do is we look at the cells that are the target for the particular cancer. So, mm -hmm. for example, if we're worried about someone getting leukemia, we look at immune system or white blood cell system cells. So we could look at any cell. If you're worried about something that might cause cancer of the lungs, you could do this analysis by getting lung cells. It's very fascinating. I mean, have uh, many lawyers started to pay attention to this particular method for determining things? Um, more and more are. We have been involved in about three dozen cases to date. We waited for our research to be published in peer-reviewed journals. That happened last September. And once you have reached that a level of acceptance in the scientific community, it can then be used in a legal environment. Is it all chemicals that are able to uh, change the gene expression profiles, or is it just certain types of chemicals? No, we expect any chemical can do that. There's no reason why it shouldn't do that uh, if it's had a harmful effect on you. Obviously, if it's not had a harmful effect, then your gene expression stays the way it once was. How will this be able to affect the improvement in patients' health care after it's diagnosed? Well, it, it, the most important thing is now being able to make an accurate diagnosis mm -hmm. so that if someone comes in and, and complains about particular symptoms, if you want to link it to a certain chemical, you would be able to do so based upon the capacity of knowing what that DNA signature that was unique to that chemical dealt with. What were the typical methods of diagnosing chemical exposure before this? guesses based upon uh, the best knowledge at the time. The reason I say that is someone could be exposed to a whole host of chemicals, but we wouldn't know which one had the particular harmful effect. And what we're able to do now is pull that needle out of the haystack, so to speak. Is it that each chemical has a very unique signature in terms of its effects on the DNA? Uh, yes. We, to date, in, in the chemicals we have worked with, that is exactly true that everyone has that unique response pattern, meaning each chemical has that unique response pattern. That is correct. Oh, I see. So there's not difference in terms of their expression? No. What I'm trying to say is it makes no difference whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're Hispanic, Caucasian, African-American, Asian-American. Your response to the chemical would be the same. And what response you might have to, let's say, something like benzene would be different than you might have, for example, chromium-6. Chromium-6 was the Aaron Brockovich chemical. Mm. That brings up a point. Is there certain chemicals that are perhaps more prevalent in terms of industry-type exposures than others? Well, the greatest concern are chemicals that can potentially cause cancer. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there might be litigation where someone would say, my cancer was caused by chemical X. If we had the DNA signature for chemical X, we could compare that to the DNA pattern in that affected person. And if that affected person matches, then we could clearly say, yes, it is medically probable that your cancer came from chemical X. But if you didn't have that match, we could equally say 
well, you do have your cancer, but Chemical X is not the culprit. It's not culpable. If, if people are interested, actually, and they think they might have been exposed to some toxic chemicals, is there a way they can find out about your science? Yes. Uh, we have an Internet site. It's www.cytokine, C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E, institute.com and they can contact us that way. Cytokines are small proteins that are secreted by the body in response to all sorts of disease processes and also just as part of normal health. So for example, if you injure yourself, you might secrete cytokines that would cause the resultant inflammation and pain at the trauma site. Other cytokines are released and cause various diseases. For example, we know cytokine-related diseases include rheumatoid arthritis, mental depression, multiple sclerosis, asthma, diabetes, and that's where we got the name cytokine from. So is this actually part of your screening test? Yes, we not only will give a patient or a chemical a DNA signature, but we can get them a unique cytokine signature as well. This is important in other diseases unrelated to chemicals. For example, oftentimes people might have diseases that have been difficult to diagnose, such as fibromyalgia, a medical problem that predominantly affects women, causes diffuse muscle pain throughout the body. We know that in fibromyalgia, cytokines play a critical role, and we could do a cytokine analysis to see if that person has the pattern consistent with fibromyalgia and make the diagnosis. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I'm curious if maybe you have some final words. Well, I think that the most important thing to realize is that science is capable of answering difficult questions. And if science is good, it will achieve a, the stature of a peer-reviewed research that people can utilize for improving their health and for also answering issues so that when it comes to legal matters, we become more black and white and less gray. And, of, of course, if people want to take a look, uh, you have peer-reviewed publications out? Yes, and if they go to the Internet site, the www.cytokineinstitute.com, under News, they can see where we've published. They can also read the scientific articles that have been peer-reviewed and accepted. All right. Well, I certainly hope people will check that out. Uh, Dr. Gillis, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today and talking about this very fascinating issue. Thank you very much as well. Have a good day. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And you were just listening to Dr. Bruce Gillis discussing advances in toxicology. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Jerry Crabtree will join us to discuss genetic modifications. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the program. 
Tears work done on cell manipulation in mice. And joining us right now to talk a little bit about this work is Professor Gary Crabtree from Stanford University. Professor Crabtree, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. So this sounds like very exciting work, especially as it relates to human diseases. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, well, yes, it was Mary Kopecki as well as his colleagues in England and in North Carolina and for the ability to genetically modify mice, allowing one to inactivate a single gene and only its function. So it's been a magnificent contribution that all of us, uh, as scientists, have been indebted to. Uh, he has changed virtually every aspect of the way that science is done today and also has allowed the production of animal models for human diseases and in some cases even the development of treatments of those diseases. So it's really a contribution that I think we all stand in awe of. And do you actually use any of your techniques in your own research? We use them almost every day. There's no time in which we're not using the methods developed to investigate how genes work uh, during the course of development or in response to environmental stimuli or in human diseases. We've used them to develop a very accurate model of human Down syndrome. But our own studies are just a small part of what is much, much larger effort that has been dependent upon mm -hmm. uh, these, mm -hmm. uh, these techniques. So in modeling human diseases in mice or other animals, are actual human genes transferred to the actual animals? Well, in a few cases, human genes are done those because the, mice gene, the mouse genes are so similar to the human genes. What we do is we just transfer the human genes or the mouse genes and in the same way that they might be affected in human disease. And so that allows us to speculate that what we see in mice is going to be true also of humans. And that's not always true, but it's so often true that we feel that it's an awfully good starting point. Speaking of diseases, um, do these techniques also apply in trying to understanding how uh, cancer works? They do, yes. I think Dr. Kopecki himself has made a number of very important mouse models of cancer, and it's mostly been a contribution at the level of understanding the disease at this point. It has allowed precise tests of models of human cancer, cancer in all animals, really, so that now we, many, many groups, when they're developing a model of human cancer, will prepare mice that have the same gene changed in the same way that we know they're changed in human cancers. And on a personal note, did you know any of... Yes, I knew Mary Kopecki. Uh, any interesting stories you want to share? Well, he's so full of interesting stories. You've probably read most of them. They've been in the New York Times. It's a really remarkable one that he was the child of a mother that was put into a prison camp during World War II. Mm -hmm. He grew up with, for a short while on the streets and then was taken in by a peasant family that had, uh, and he lived on the farm. He, when you talk to him about sort of farming, he knows all the details of how to do sort of subsistence level farming mm -hmm. uh, from mm -hmm. that period of his life. So mm -hmm. he uh, has remarkable breadth of experience from poorest kind of royal 
subsistence farming to the sort of highest intellectual activity when he was at Harvard. Him in particular, his determination to make homologous recombination work. He persisted at this when no one else thought it would work. And over the years, just continuously moving forward, always with a great deal of imagination and creativity, spectacular creativity and imagination, really, mm -hmm. to solve each of the problems that came along. There are very few stories in science where there was such a combination of rugged persistence put together with wonderful creativity and imagination. Great, that's really inspiring, and finally, I'm looking to another future. Oh, well, that's very hard to estimate and to speculate upon. I think right now the thing that everyone would name would be the developments that are coming out of studies of stem cells and pluripotentiality mm -hmm. and the ability to generate different cell types, will from embryonic stem cells, and almost certainly that will lead in, in the future to the development of therapies that are based upon generation of specific cell types and specific organs probably that can be used to replace organs that have misfunctioned or been injured by one means or another. So I think that we're facing a day when that will be real and understanding the fundamental principles of that will I think be the subject of tremendous scientific achievement. Mm -hmm. One could never tell. And the way will also be the basis of the development of new therapies. I'm, I'm quite confident. Well, Professor Crabtree, I really appreciate your time and thank you for joining us on this week's program. Okay, thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Jerry Crabtree discussing genetic modifications. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Rocketron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Stupid Science Word of the Month brought to you here on Science. The Stupid I, Science Word of the Month is shmoo. Do you know what shmoo means, Frank? Anything related to moo? No, it's actually, it's akin to shmoo from the Yiddish word schmuck, meaning penis or fool. Can we say that on the air? Yeah, I don't think you used any bad words there, did you? It's very scientific. Does it have any scientific uh, relevance? Yes, yeah, shmoo means a yeast cell which is preparing to mate. Oh, okay. Did you know that yeast cells mated? I thought yeast were just mating all the time, right? Well, when a yeast cell is ready to have sex, it looks like an elongated pear. Ah. Somebody thought that it looked like a, um, there was an old comic strip, Little Abner, and there's a character in there named the Shmoo, which looked like a pear. And somebody decided that they were going to name the yeast cells that look like they're ready to mate Shmoo's. So next time you hear that word shmoo, you'll know what the heck they're talking about. Too bad there's no schmooze button on my alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> Bing, okay. time to wake up. I've done that before. All right, well, thanks a lot, Peter. And I think Geraldine has something to add to uh, the world of science, the world of science fashion. Hey, Geraldine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. 
It's good to to be here. Another local Calix devotee, right? That's right. Local Calix devotee. That's for sure. I just wanted to let you and your listeners know that there are some articles of clothing out there that Olivia Ong, a senior design major at Cornell University, has developed. It's clothing that prevents you from getting the flu or other viruses. I wow. think it's pretty neat. Does it emanate like some invisible shield around it so you're protected? It, ha- by, it has uh... a built-in sneeze guard, I think. No, uh. no, no. What it is, it's fabric that's been dipped in some sort of positively charged cotton fabric in a solution of negative charged ions. So it's silver nanoparticles that deactivate bacteria and viruses. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I think silver particles they've used on countertops to prevent bacteria from growing. They're like antibacterial. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's pretty cool. I don't know if people actually ingest silver nanoparticles. Some people do it to activate their immune system or something. But the, the, the scary one is zinc or copper. And what happens is that people end up having a blue face. Wow. The yeah. copper co- or the zinc? What? Yeah, one of those somehow causes your skin to turn blue. Too much metal, huh? Probably. Yeah. It's not very smurfy, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, or people <laughs> like to be smurfy. So what the Popular Science article says is that the um, palladium nanoparticles act like tiny catalytic converters to break down harmful components of air pollution. That, mm. They say something about that, too. And I guess this sort of clothing is considered functional clothing. Garments that do more than just make you look cool. I don't know. I'm sure you've seen this in the market in an REI or something. T-shirts with bug repellent built into them. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. So it's called functional clothing. You know, the coolest functional stuff I've heard about is some fibers. And they coat it with the um, main ingredient from pepper, capsaicin. Uh Uh-huh. So if you lick on it, it's like extremely hot. And apparently it prevents certain animals like rats from chewing on it. Oh, wow. Who'd have thought? Pepper stuff. I mean, that's what they make the pepper spray, capsaicin. Functional clothing. Hey, Frank, this is something I learned out of my favorite magazine, Discover. A question for you. How big is the biggest bug today? Well, say, I guess that excludes mammals, right? Bugs. So, at least six feet. No. The biggest bug today is a beetle. That's about the size of that computer mouse over there. Okay, I think I've seen a few of those. Like in Asia, they're pretty common, right? You go into the tropical forest and there's these huge beetles, which look really nasty. But from what I understand, they're pretty benign creatures. They're like, they can't even chew through you, so. I'll tell you, if I saw a beetle that big, it would scare the heck out of me. But 300 million years ago, had we been around then. It was yesterday, man. <laughs> before global the, warming. They had bugs as big as five feet long. Just five feet? That's pretty big for a bug. Wow, I wonder how big humans were then. 300 million years ago, humans weren't big. They weren't? Okay. No, we, we weren't very popular then. Unlike vertebrates, bugs absorb oxygen directly through a network of tubes. You mean from their skin? Yes. I can almost do that if I hold my breath long enough. <laughs> you look a little buggy. Oh, well, it was a... Or, no, that was batty. <laughs> but, um, oxygen levels were higher, were nearly 50% higher 300 million years ago, which allowed bugs to have bigger air tubes and allowed bigger mm. bugs. Mm-hmm. Imagine that two-foot-long dragonflies. Wow, and people 50 feet tall. They might we could be giants. still swat them. <laughs> hey, so something more real that I read about, that frogs back then were the size of bowling balls. Wow. They had big bugs to eat. They could grow big. Yeah, Guess that so, makes huh? sense. Yeah. Of course, I don't know sh- what happens if they fall over. Is it like cows tipping over and like frogs <laughs> or something? Like- <laughs> hey, let's, let's go. Frog tipping. Let's drink some beers and do some frog tipping. Things you never knew before, and did you want to know them? Never thought of it until uh, you told me.
Hey, thanks a lot, Peter and Jeremy. And that was all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.